If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 4 and 5 today. If you don't have one, there should be a Bible in the chair in front of you. In those Bibles, it's on page 969. Series that we're in right now in the book of Acts, we've called the Unstoppable Gospel. Uh, and we've covered already Acts 1 through 3. And now coming to chapter 4, we are confronted with the first uh, real challenge that the gospel meets. First opposition that threatens to stop the gospel. And so that's what we will look at today. But this is historical narrative and it's theological narrative. Luke is writing to convince an audience of theological truth. And so want to think about what is the context of this story? What's the setting? What is... Who are the characters? What's the plot? Where's the conflict that comes here? And then what's the reason that Luke is giving this to his original audience and then to us as well? So just a little bit of background for some of you who maybe are coming today just to catch you up on our series. Acts 1 opens with Luke saying, he's writing to Theophilus, and he says, I'm in my first book. Uh, which is the Gospel of Luke, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so there's implication here that in this book, he's continuing to teach us to tell about what Jesus continues to do and teach. Jesus, who is now resurrected uh, and ascended and seated on the throne, he is still at work in his church, through his church, through his Holy Spirit. Uh, And so we're going to see this rule and reign of Jesus expanding And in Acts 1.8, we read this summary, this promise of Jesus. He tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come on you, and when he does, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in three different ways, in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we we mentioned how that's going to provide us some structure for, for Luke's book, Uh, Towards the beginning of Acts, you're going to see this focus in Jerusalem and then expanding out later to to Judea and all Samaria. And then the book ends with the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. And so here we're still at the beginning. And so we want to be thinking about Jerusalem. The the gospel is is spreading in Jerusalem here at the beginning of Acts. Uh, And so then in Acts 2... Uh, we see Jews that had gathered, uh, some of them had been spread out to all different nations. Uh, and so they gathered back for this uh, Pentecost celebration. Uh, and many of them, when they were there then, they heard the gospel and, and through miracle heard the gospel in their own language. And so the Holy Spirit comes on them. Peter preaches this message of the Messiah. The Messiah is here. He is crucified. He is raised and he is ascended. And it says thousands believe. 3,000 come to the faith. And then at the end of Acts 2, where it goes on talking kind of a summary of what the church does, we see this language of temple introduced. Uh, And that's going to narrow our focus again as we think of the scene. What's the setting that this story is happening? Look at Acts 2, 46 and 47, and then it bookends also with Acts 5. Real similar statements that Luke gives. He says, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple 
and broke bread from house to house. So in the temple and house to house. And then in Acts 5, at the end of the passage we're going to look at today, it says every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And so in between those two references, Acts 3 through 5, you have 10 more times that the word temple shows up. Uh, and so here's this, this setting, this scene of where these events are happening. I've got a picture of the temple to give you there. Um, so a couple weeks ago when Joe preached in Acts 3, there was a, a disabled person, man, who was there at the beautiful gate, at one of the gates of the temple. He was there begging uh, and Peter and John come up to him and they heal him. It says the man jumps up, he's leaping, and he enters the temple. Um, and so now they go into the temple. And then this sermon that Peter preaches where uh, he's preaching, repent, turn to God, turn to Christ. You crucified him, God raised him. So this, this message that Peter is preaching is up there at Solomon's portico, or some translations say Solomon's colonnade. And so it's, it's over there. There's, it's a pretty huge section. These columns and open air, uh, but this section in the temple, that's where he was preaching. And there's a conflict that starts to arise. And so Luke is tipping us off already that there's, there's this dichotomy between old Israel and this old temple and their religious authorities and this new people of God uh, he's building a new temple uh, and have new authorities. Jesus as the ultimate authority, and then these apostles are new leaders of this church, this growing temple of God. And so we're, we're starting to see some of that, and that's what happens. That's the setting for this conflict. So Peter preaches this message. He's making the Jewish leaders look bad. They come and confront him, and that's what we're going to pick up on in Acts 4. So let's read Acts 4. Let's just read one through five for now. While they were speaking to the people, so this is Peter preaching there. So while that was going on, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So characters here are Peter and John. They're preaching this message. The crowd is there around. And then these religious leaders of the temple come and approach. Uh, there's the priest. There's the captain of the temple guard. So this would have been probably... The, the second in command, part of the high priestly family. He's in charge of the temple police. Uh, Rome had given some jurisdiction to the Jews here inside the temple so that they could keep that in, in their religious purity. Uh, and so these religious leaders also carried political power uh, as well. And so they're coming, they're feeling the threat uh, and they're wanting to put a stop to this spread. Their authority is being challenged here. Uh, in John 11, some of these same people, some of these same rulers uh, are feeling the same thing about Jesus. This wasn't that long ago. This is what they said about Jesus in John 11:48. They said, if we let him go on like this, 
Everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and they will take away our temple and our nation. So from that day on, they plotted to kill Jesus. So since these Jewish leaders are responsible for plotting to kill Jesus, leading to his crucifixion, his resurrection and and talk about that is going to make them look bad and put yourself in their position. They're a little bit concerned as well just about what this is going to do politically. Uh, This is going to disrupt some of the stability that they have. Rome has trusted them to keep control of these people, and they have a good system going. And so there's a little bit of a a threat that's coming to their authority, and they're, they're wanting again to put a stop to this just like they did with Jesus. They thought we ended that. Now it's, it's happening again. How can we end this? And so they arrest Peter and John. They put them in jail somewhere there in the temple that night uh, and say, we'll deal with it uh, the next day. Let's get a, a night of rest, deal with it tomorrow. But Luke ends this scene already by telling us this gospel cannot be stopped. These religious leaders come, they arrest them, and then Luke says, many who heard the message believed the number of men came to about 5,000. So this second great explosion of growth of people who are coming to believe that Jesus is the true Messiah. And it comes right as these men are arrested. So let's then go to scene two the next day. We'll see the, the story of these rulers and elders and scribes coming again. Look at verse five. More temple leaders here. This is the Sanhedrin. It doesn't say it here, but this is the description of those, that group that would have formed this council. So there are rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power... Or in what name have you done this? I'm going to put a picture of this Sanhedrin up there. It's not an actual photo, just a drawing. Um, but this is, this is the room, uh, similar to what they would have been in a room off to the side of the temple. About 70 men, these were aristocrat, religious and political leaders, would have been made up of scribes, um, some of the temple priests, uh, as far as religious uh, groups. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees were uh, notorious. Their, their big difference in these groups were that the Sadducees did not believe that there was a future resurrection of the dead. And so there are a couple different reasons that they were against uh, what Peter and John and the other apostles were preaching. One is because if Jesus rose from the dead, then there must be a resurrection from the dead. It must be possible. So there were theological reasons. I already mentioned some of the political reasons. Um, and so this scene is a scene of intimidation. Uh, as, as Peter and John are there, they're in front of the high priest. There, there's a surrounding group of authorities. And the question that they ask is, by what? authority? What name are you doing these things? Who gives you the right? Uh, there's, a, there's a posture of authority that's just felt in this room. We are in charge of what happens at this temple. By what name do you think you are speaking and doing these things? And that, that word name comes up over and over again in this passage. 
So right away, Luke is setting up this scene for this dichotomy between the authorities who had been in charge of the temple, had been in charge of Israel, had been ruling, and God's people and this new temple that was being built. And so then we see Peter's bold answer. They ask him this, Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Peter here is filled with the Spirit. Again, not very long ago, when the stakes were much lower, Jesus had been arrested, and Peter is questioned three times Aren't you? Aren't you one of his followers? Haven't I seen you with him? And he says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I swear I do not know this man. Uh, his, his famous, infamous denial of Jesus. And this could have happened again. He could have slipped up here again. He could have uh, fumbled and said, I don't, I don't really know what name. Um, John thought it'd be okay if we came in here and talked. Uh, we, I don't know who this guy, we thought we were trying to help him. Uh, there could have been a real uh, trying to back his way out of this group, but this is not the Peter that's in this story because now he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, he speaks with confidence and with courage. So the Spirit gives confidence and courage during these interrogations and threats. Jesus prepped Peter for this. He prepped his followers of this. There is going to come persecution. You are going to face trials and, and these interrogations. In Luke 12, 11, Jesus said, Whenever they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. The Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Uh, this is coming to pass right here in the story we're reading about. Jesus said it again in Luke 21. Uh, before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors because of my name, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. For I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. This is exactly what we see. So what words did the Holy Spirit give to Peter in this moment? He talks about the healing, how this is done in Jesus' name. It's by Jesus that this man is standing before you healthy or healed or saved. And then he quotes from Psalm 118. He says, The stone rejected by you, builders, which has become the cornerstone. So this Jesus 
is the cornerstone that you rejected. They, this same group has heard this before. Not that long ago, Jesus quoted Psalm 118 to them as well. This is in Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, have you never read this in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruits. So this is triggering them. Peter is quoting from them what Jesus already quoted. And when Jesus said it, when Jesus said, this stone that you reject, God is going to vindicate and the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you. And they're feeling this threat now, that this temple authority is being threatened. That, that, that Peter here is saying, Jesus, whom they crucified, who they killed, God has vindicated him, and now he is the foundation of this new temple, this new dwelling place of God, which is his people. And then he goes on and he says, and there is salvation in no one else, no other name given under heaven by which you must be saved. No other name given under heaven, given to people by which we must be saved. There's the ultimate authority here that Peter's pointing to. You rulers, you've been ruling this temple. There is a king way above you, way above you who is establishing his kingdom and there is hope and salvation and rescue in no one else except in Jesus so these apostles, Peter here specifically, fulfilling what Jesus said, the Holy Spirit would give him words and they wouldn't be able to respond to it. So the rulers confer, they have a conference, verse 13, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, they realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who'd been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. That's what Jesus promised. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What do we do with these men? An obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them again against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them. And ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So Peter and John say, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. We are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So then after threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. So authority is attacked again here, very specifically, as Peter says, do you think that we're supposed to obey you when God has given us a higher command? We have a higher authority than, than you guys, and we're going to obey him. Uh, and they can't do anything at this point. Similar to some of their feelings with Jesus, if we, if we do something, if we act, the crowd is going to uprise. They've just seen this healing. 
So the Sanhedrin just say, we're, we're going to threaten you. If, if this happens again, worse things are coming. Uh, and then they let them go. So now scene three. Peter and John return to the church, to their people, and they tell this story. In verse 23, after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now look at how the church responds. When they heard this, they raised their voices together and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Okay, so there's no request yet. They are praying here, acknowledging a confidence in God's sovereign rule. Even the way that they address him. They don't address him here as Heavenly Father, uh, dear God, or dear Jesus. They call him Master, or some translations say Sovereign Lord, Sovereign God. Acknowledging he's in control of everything. And then speaking of him as creator. You, you are the one who made heaven, that's everything up there, and earth, everything here, and the sea, everything out there that's dark and scary, everything in them, everything that exists, these categories. God, you made it all. And then you said, so he's sovereign, he created, he said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David. So they're quoting here Psalm 2. I want you just to turn there briefly because they didn't, they didn't quote all of it. We won't read all of it either, but turn back to Psalm 2. If you're using the church Bible, it's, Page 472. They're acknowledging that, God, you prophesied that this would happen. This is no surprise to you that, that there are rulers who are rising up against you, rising up against Jesus. This is no shock to you and God's response to that kind of human arrogance in verse one of Psalm 2, he says, Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. Rulers conspire together against Yahweh, against the Lord, and his anointed one. This is Jesus. So the response that, let's tear off their chains, throw off their ropes from us, from these other rulers. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. And he speaks to them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath. This is what he says. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your Possession. So this is what God's people remember. They remember this psalm. They remember that, that David, God through David said, this is going to happen. There are going to be rulers who rise up, who, who plot in vain, but they're not in charge. 
There's a God who is way over them and laughs at their arrogance, thinking that they can defeat him, thinking that they can put a stop and end to this gospel. And then they, then they apply it to their own situation. They mention some rulers. They say, in this city, Herod and Pontius Pilate, and then the people, they, they've assembled together against Jesus, against your servant, which you anointed. Uh, so they're acknowledging God is creator. He is sovereign. He's promised that all this is going to happen. It's not a surprise to him. And he's predestined it. This is all part of his plan. So even what these people are doing who are rising up, as God's people are praying here in verse 28, he says, they're doing whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. So they're just acknowledging, God, you got this. You're in control of all this. And now they come to him with their requests. So here's what they ask him. Now, Lord, consider their threats. This is verse 29. Consider their threats. Grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word boldly. So they're acknowledging God's sovereignty, his rule, that these other authorities are nothing compared to God and then they are asking that as they walk through this suffering, as they walk through this hostility, as they walk through this opposition, that God would give them boldness. And so the answer that comes from God is that the place was shaken. Uh, some sort of an event happened right there. And, and in the Old Testament, we see these different shakings as, as this theophany or this um, this image of God's presence that was there and as he answers in that way and fills them with his spirit uh, empowers them again it says and they speak boldly many times in Acts when it says that they're filled with the Holy Spirit the, the immediate result is that there is, God's people are filled with courage with boldness to speak now we're going to skip a section uh, Acts 4.32 down through 5.16 is dealing with the church, the community life in the church. And we're going to see next week, David Woolen will be preaching, uh, seeing some of the opposition that arises from within the church. So today, thinking about opposition or threats from outside. And so let's jump to verse 17 of chapter 5. There's another account. This is the escalation of these imprisonments. The Sanhedrin threatened them and released them. And they didn't stop. So now they're back in trouble again. We're going to read another imprisonment, Acts 5, 17. Then the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees. They were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But the angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Uh, so they're arrested again, again put in prison overnight. But this time an angel comes and in some way miraculously lets them out. Uh, and they go right back to the temple and teach. So then let's pick up the next day. 
The high priest, this is, this is great. The high priest and those who were with him arrived. They convened the Sanhedrin. Picture that room again. There's this pomp, um, prestige. These are the power, powerful people of that time, of that temple. We're here. We're going to put an end to it this time. They've convened. They've called for order. And now they're calling to bring the accused. So they're all assembled. They just don't have anyone to try right now. It says the full council of the Israelites. They sent orders to the jail to have them brought. When the servants got there, they did not find them in jail. So they returned and reported. Uh, we found the jail. It was locked securely. The guards are standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Uh, what are they going to do? What are they going to say? They're trying to put a stop to this, and uh, somehow these men have disappeared. So as they're, as they're trying to, to decide how to react to this, someone comes and reports to them, look, the men that you put in jail, they're standing in the temple. They're teaching the people. So the commander went with his servants brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. Uh, imagine these disciples. They're there. They're right back out in that temple area. They're teaching. They're doing exactly what they were told not to do, exactly what they've been thrown in prison for twice, now thrown in jail twice now. Uh, they're there, but the angel tells them to go. Uh, this court is in session, but they have no one to try. And someone comes in and said, sorry, they're... They're out teaching again. So they pull them in. The disciples come willingly uh, because the, they were afraid if we bring them with force, they, they might stone us. The crowd might uprise. Verse 27, they brought them in. They had them stand before the Sanhedrin. The high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man on his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So again, speaking with boldness and clarity, again, that the Jesus that they crucified, he's the real ruler. They must obey God rather than them. So verse 33, they are enraged but talked down by Gamaliel. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, ordered that the men, the apostles, be taken outside for a little while. And then he said to them, the others, other members of the council, men of, men of Israel, be careful about what you are about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men. Leave them alone. 
For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may be even found fighting against God. So they were persuaded by him. After they called in the apostles, they had them flogged and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they released them. So their, their persuasion by him was limited. Uh, they, they weren't just going to let them go. They still beat them up, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, sent them out. Then, here's this summary statement again. They went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. And every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Gamaliel here uh, says a similar thing. There's a few different times in our text today that this theme of unstoppable shows up. Uh, when, when they were first on trial, Peter says, we are not able to stop speaking. We're not able to stop. Uh, here Gamaliel says, if this is from God, if this work is from God, you won't be able to stop it. You won't be able to overthrow it. You might actually find yourself fighting against God. And then this, this summary statement again, that right after they were flogged, right after they were sent out and threatened again, saying, do not speak in his name, immediately Luke says, and every day, Every day, they continued teaching in the temple and in house to house. And so this gospel, no matter what threat comes, continues to be unstoppable. And Luke is, Luke is giving this to us, uh, I think, for a few reasons. To help, to help us see this progression of the gospel as, as God's kingdom is expanding. He's restoring his kingdom through Jesus. And here in Jerusalem, this location of the temple, that temple authority had to be challenged. Uh, and he's, he's showing there is a new temple, a new authority, new leaders. Jesus is the ultimate authority. And that when God's spirit fills his people, they'll respond with confidence and with courage. And so for us today, how do, we, how do we think about this passage and apply it? I think it's likely that there are some here, at least one here, who's not a Christian. Uh, and this passage isn't actually written directly to you, but I think, I think there are still some compelling things here for you, reasons why you should turn from trusting in anything else and turn to trust in King Jesus, to, to give your life to him and to find forgiveness in him. Peter here is the one who says, there's salvation in no one else. The hope that you are looking for can't be found anywhere else except in Jesus. And, and maybe you've never wrestled with what Gamaliel was wrestling with. Have you ever really thought about the, the historical truths that are behind the Christian faith? There, there were, maybe you haven't read this before, there were other figures, other Messiah figures that, that arose, that uh, claimed to be this promised one that, that gathered followings. There's a couple mentioned here. There's others in historical documents that you can read about, and they did gather crowds to them. 
and gathered followings. And, and what, the, what Luke says here in Acts happened in every one of those cases, that as that leader died, it proved that they weren't the, the true Messiah and their groups dwindled away, fizzled out. And it looked like that was going to happen to this Jesus movement as well. As Jesus was arrested and crucified, his, his disciples were scattered. Peter's denying that he even knows him. They're in hiding. They're going back to their jobs. But something happened that radically transformed this group of followers of Jesus that didn't let them continue to scatter, didn't let that movement fizzle, didn't let it die. Instead, it actually changed the entire course of human history as these men start to say, I've seen Jesus risen again. I've seen him. I've touched him. I'm, I'm a witness of these things. And this movement of Christianity that is now the largest uh, faith that exists on earth uh, and it's the most diverse of all different peoples fulfilling God's promise that Jesus is gathering from all the nations these people who will submit to him and follow him, this movement is an evidence that something happened. And the best explanation for that is the resurrection. And if you don't know Jesus, I'd, I'd urge you to really consider that and to turn and trust in him. For Christians here, those of you who say, I, I already believe in him, I already follow him, I want us to think a little bit about this statement where the apostle said, I can't help but speak. I want us to think about these, these two traits that we see here that the Holy Spirit helps with. One is confidence and one is courage. I think this passage can help us as Christians with both. Give us confidence. Even what I was just talking about, that gives us confidence that this is true, that this really happened. How, how is it that that these apostles, these disciples could say, I can't help, I can't stop speaking about Jesus. And for us, sometimes I feel the opposite. I feel like I can't start speaking of Jesus. What's the difference there? And I don't, I don't want us just to um, leave feeling bad, feeling guilty. I want us to think about what, what's true about what these apostles believed that, that maybe could grow in us. If, if tomorrow it's announced on the news uh, that in Illinois it is illegal to try to convince anyone that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the only way, it's illegal to evangelize, it's illegal to proselytize. If that announcement comes, I don't think it's going to, but if it did, how long would it be before that affected us. How long before we break that law? Not, not how long before we're mad about it. Not how long before we're offended about our liberties being taken away, but how long before it actually mattered? How long before uh, we are faced with a situation where we're wrestling with, do I break the law and speak of Jesus or do I keep it to myself? And why, why is it that these apostles could not Stop speaking. It says in that passage, uh, they can't stop speaking about what they've seen and heard. And I wonder, I wonder if they had a greater confidence that these things are really true than we might. 
we might need to pray, God, help me to really believe that this is true, that, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Imagine, you're, you're one of them. Uh, you think they've got an advantage. They saw him. They did. They were witnesses. They saw Jesus, who had just been crucified, and now he's alive, and he's with them, and they, they've touched him, and they've eaten with him, and they are, they are with him. Think of how much confidence they would have had that these things are true, completely true, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he really is king, that he really is ruling, that he really is above any other authority or opposition that we face in this life. If we had that kind of firm conviction, they really believed what, Acts, or what Psalm 2 says, that God is sovereign, that, that the raging that is happening uh, among the peoples, turning against Jesus is, is expected and it's not catching God by surprise and Christianity is not dwindling away to nothing. We're not on the losing side. No, they really believe that no matter what they went through, they would be vindicated because Jesus was vindicated. They really believed that even as they go through suffering, they, their response was to rejoice in it because they knew this is fulfillment of what Jesus said we would go through. And it's almost this badge of honor for them. Well, I'm counted worthy to suffer for Jesus in this way. I think part of it's because they had this really deep confidence that this is real. This is all really true. And that confidence with the Holy Spirit led to a courage. Courage is a little different. Confidence is just that inward belief. This is right. This is real. Jesus really is risen, really is ascended, really is ruling. Courage, though, is what we do with that to speak in the face of opposition. Their prayer was for boldness and courage, and the Holy Spirit filled them and gave them words to say in that moment. This is what our prayer should be, church. God, give us this kind of confidence that we really believe Jesus there's salvation in no one else except in you and Holy Spirit give me courage to believe that no matter what I face or what I go through you will be with me and give me words to speak in that moment one, one last caveat maybe just to throw in at the end uh, what they were persecuted for here was their faith in Jesus. Um, so it's not just any time we make someone mad or any time we're offensive to the world that that qualifies as this kind of boldness. No, there's a difference in, in your small groups. I want you to think a little bit about uh, a difference. Those of you who are in small groups or gospel communities, think about the difference. What's, what's a spirit-filled courage? How's that different from just brashness or um, the ways that Christians can be unnecessarily offensive in their manner. Or in the content of what we want to fight about. Is it, is it primarily that we are digging in with a, a gospel-focused love and spirit-filled courage that we want to speak the truth of hope to someone that Jesus really is the king? And that does have implications that if he is king, then he gets to, to, to rule over us. Or... Are we making people mad around us because of other things? Uh, just, just for us to, to center our courage on who Jesus is as our master. Let me pray for us.